Welcome to the Al Hakam Inspire podcast. With us today, we have Dr. Jalil Sharif, who is a psychiatrist specializing in neurodevelopmental disorders, intellectual disability, and autism and ADHD. Um, he has a postgraduate qualification in neuroscience at King's College London and is currently completing an MSc in genomic medicine at Imperial College London. Dr. Jalil, Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome to the podcast. Wa Alaikum Asalaam, peace be upon you too, and you can just call me Jalil. Um, Jalil, um, thank you for joining us. So, mashallah, um, you know, you've had an amazing um, journey so far in research, and we want to get into what you've been researching, especially as well. So, just tell us right now, you know, in terms of your background, how you got into the research, how you got into psychiatry as well, and what kind of things are you researching? Okay, sure. So um, I guess in regards to my professional background, in regards to psychiatry, I guess from when I was a much young, when I was much younger, I guess in schoolish time or so, I always found the mind very fascinating, and at the same time, I found genetics very interesting. And uh, after my degree in medicine, I started working and did my house jobs and so on and so forth, and I landed in psychiatry and I never looked back. Within psychiatry, I was exposed to this specific specialty that I'm doing right now, which is an intellectual disability, neurodevelopmental disorders, and also encompassing autism and ADHD. And that I found very fascinating. And that also caused me to be more interested in academia because it's a very nice area where there's an overlap between genetics and neurodevelopmental disorders because most of those um patients that I, most of the patients that i see do have an overlap they have some sort of mental health problem they have a genetic problem and they do not have uh, the iq of a normal person and then they also possibly have autism and adhd as well sure so you've done a lot of research into iq and understanding sort of what iq is can you share with our listeners what you found what is iq and you know some people disregard it as a score, as a predicting score. Some people take it quite seriously. So give us a bit of information about that. So IQ is essentially, it's a psychometric test if, if to measure someone's aptitude or meaning someone's skill. And there are different types of IQ tests, but essentially what that means is it's testing your ability to do certain things, including the most common one, the most common and the most famous IQ test is called the Wechsler Adult Intelligence Scale for adults, meaning for people over the age of 18. And for children, it's called the Wechsler Intelligence Scale for children. And that aims to measure different things, different skills. So the two main categories that are there is either testing your verbal IQ, and that includes vocabulary and maths and things like that. But it also has a specific part of, on performance, and that would be things like spatial awareness, meaning if you would have a puzzle of how to put the puzzle together, or also looking at symbols and f match patterns and so on. So there's two major elements to it. And that gives you a rough guidelines of what the level of functioning is for that person. And is that, you know, you so it, very nicely described, but you have those 
online IQ tests. I remember as a kid, I used to always take it. And it used to be those things where everyone would be discussing it in school about have you taken that IQ test online? How accurate are those? And what is that the way to test IQ? So how would you go around testing? So I would say if you really want to know about your own IQ, I would say you should get actually a proper one done. In the internet one, I think I've done them myself as well. Um, I'm not sure if they're too accurate. What, what, what is a proper one? So, so as I mentioned just now, the, so, the, so the Wexler adult one, Wexler adult, it's called WAIS race. That would be a proper one. And for children, it would be something called WISC, W-I-S-C. And, and they would be the most common one used by psychologists and psychiatrists to assess someone's level of IQ. And the average person, so the average person who doesn't have any problem with the intellectual functioning would have the IQ of about 100. So that's the rough average. Yeah. 100. And is that a particular age or what age are we talking about? 100. So- so um, I think uh, that that needs to be clarified. So uh, generally speaking, the IQ is consistent from birth um, until adulthood, unless you would have some sort of trauma to your brain. So what that means is you usually keep your amount, but unless something happened to your brain, you can only reduce it, but you cannot actually increase the IQ that you have. You know, in terms of um, upbringing, so you do a lot of work with, children and their development and especially with children who have low iq how much does upbringing um child development affect especially in the early stages affect iq um you know there's a lot of other studies where there's you know the child attachment theories and how that affects um relationships in in the future but so so i wanted to ask that how how do, how much does upbringing affect IQ within children? So I think you, that's a very good question. Um, so although my major work is actually with adults, but I have I'm definitely very well aware in regards to how it comes about in, from the childhood and goes into the adulthood. So we usually say that about eighty percent of your IQ is predetermined by your genetics. So that will give you the estimate of how much you will have as a child and all the way into adulthood. The 20% that's left remaining is what you're rightly asking, things in regards to your upbringing and your social environment and so on. Generally speaking, from a psychiatric perspective, we don't look at just one perspective. We look at it from the biological, psychological and social model. And I, I imagine the question is, is there any way for us to allow a child to develop, either be more intelligent, well, and, and I think that would be a more, or, or be able to work much better with new information. I think that's a more appropriate question because IQ, as I said, is generally very fixed. The maximum you could probably be, you, the maximum wiggle room you would have is maybe about five. So instead of having 100, you might be able to get to 105, but you wouldn't be able to get from, let's say, 60 to 100. You know, so, so 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 that there's there's a fine line and fine difference there. Sure, I mean, you've you've mentioned genetics there, and you mentioned kind of um, how that has an impact on on your IQ. So, 
is there any way is there any actual way to kind of develop you said sort of broadly speaking is consistent throughout your life is there actually any way to develop or are you sort of always going to if, for someone with low iq are they always going to be like that um and is there any way to maximize your capacity so you know a person who has the ability to reach a potential iq they actually um create that kind of environment around them what what kind of tools and things can they can they use so so i so with the intellectual disability side so generally the patients i see would have an iq less than 75 mostly and from our understanding usually that has been consistent from the early parts of their life up until adulthood and continues so they usually had some assessment in school they would have some assessment while we have seen them as adults as well and this would continue progress and generally there's no change in the iq but there would be a change in how we support them and how they can actually develop life skills and how to approach um how to improve their daily functioning now if it is somebody who has a normal iq a child who has the iq of 100 or 100 plus it is more important to discuss about matters to provide a nourishing environment to allow them to develop skills to be more efficient at learning to be more curious and then to develop skills that will allow them to be the best of what they want to be the best in, essentially, if that makes sense. If we just bring in sort of ADHD and autism here, um, we've talked about sort of intellectual disability. Um, th- these conditions in particular, how is IQ sort of relevant in these conditions? So generally speaking, the way, the, the, um, the, the amount or the frequency of, of ADHD and autism, we call... Uh, the specific term for that is used is prevalence. And what we usually mean is in about one to two people per hundred, there is autism as well as ADHD. We generally use a different diagnostic criteria for that, which is called ICD-10 and also now the ICD-11. And generally speaking, the American system, meaning USA and, and Canada, so on, they will usually generally use a different system. So they have usually a higher rate of prevalence, but the consistency worldwide is about one to two children in a hundred. Now, the more relevant bit is, is I is ADHD and autism more prevalent in general population or with somebody with intellectual disability? So the consensus is because if there's some abnormality in the brain, either during both birth or after birth, then there's more likely risk for somebody with intellectual disability to have autism or ADHD. But that does not mean that people, in, again, in the general population cannot have that. So there's plenty of, there's this sufficient amount of children, if you think about one in 100, two in 100, that's a lot of children who would also have autism and ADHD. You, you know, one thing just coming off that, it's, a, so you have all these labels, you know, that they've got autism, they've got ADHD, they've got um, intellectual learning issues. How much, you know, uh, I'm sure there's a lot of parents out there and people who, well, grown-ups who, you know, realize that they've got ADHD or they've been told they have. From what I've read, there's a lot of people who've gone on to be very successful. They've got autism, they've got um, ADHD. For example, Michael Phelps, you know, he he's, he's famously known as having ADHD and um, Einstein, they say that he had autism and a lot of these it's it's anecdotal but they say in silicon valley a lot of people have autism so for all those listening who are worried 
if they their children or themselves they have this how how does that actually affect life i i think that's a very good and very relevant question i would say it is individual circumstances and individual environment that allows you to have essentially a relative successful life of what other people would perceive a successful life I think we have to consider the fact that having a diagnosis of ADHD or autism is a bit like having a nationality. So let's say we all we are all of South Asian background. We all are Pakistani. So diagnosing somebody with autism is essentially he is in the country of autism. Every person with autism will have shared will have shared characteristics, but every person who's got a diagnosis of autism is also unique in their own way of how they have autism. So if you have met somebody who's got autism, you have met one person with autism and his autism will be different than the next person's autism. Yeah, that's an interesting point there, actually, because it's all sort of relative. It's all um, sort of in the sense that, you know, no, no two of these conditions are the same. So it's interesting to see kind of how the overlap is um, in terms of uh, uh, of IQ here. Um, just want to touch on this aspect of neuroplasticity. You know, this this kind of uh, understanding that the brain can change and develop and rewire throughout life. Does that have an effect on IQ? And um, if so, then again. Is this something that is it deeply related or how sort of how deep does it correlate with with the intelligence of of, a, of an individual? I think it, it goes more so to the aspect of, of actually learning and learning efficiently. So because your IQ allows to a certain degree of how you can learn and how you can learn effectively. And then the environment provides you the tool of how to learn further. So the neuroplasticity is the bit of when you learn you can develop new skills, but that is all limited by the overall IQ that you have, if that makes sense. So it's 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 a stepping stone. If you have a normal IQ, you will be able to gather more information and you will be able to develop more skills in life. And to nourish that, you have to think about actually living a healthy lifestyle. So eating healthy, doing exercise, and actually learning itself is a good way of being successful in life. So being actively engaged in the pursuits that you're interested in and wanting to have that curiosity. So that is all a positive stepping stone towards staying intelligent and, and continuing with that, with continuing your engagement with, with activities that will continue to allow you to be more intelligent. But the actual underlying IQ won't change. And with somebody who's got a lower IQ, it will be difficult for them to learn the same amount as somebody who has got a normal IQ. And, and that, that's what makes it more challenging. And that's what, what, what made, made me interested in my profession in regards to how can we support people with low IQ and how can they learn to develop normal living skills. So I find it very interesting. So for us, it's not pretty normal to make a cup of tea, you know, to brush your teeth. And then that comes normally for us because this is something we learned early on. But when I see some of my patients, they've struggled with these things. And how do we provide them effective support so they can learn that? And that goes back to the level of, of IQ. So the, your IQ allows you to be more effective in learning, to develop a wide variety of skills. And that 
possibly something that other people then perceive as he's very intelligent, he's outstanding, but that does not equate necessarily to IQ. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I just basically I want to ask you talk. You spoke about exercise. You spoke about having a good diet. You spoke about learning as well. What other steps and if you could expand on these steps as well and what other steps if someone wants to improve their learning or their child's learning what other steps could they take if you know a lot of people have issues with focus at work kids with adhd have focus focus issues so what steps could people take you spoke about exercise diet and um, mind or learning new things because that helps with plasticity but if you could expand on that and give, you know, what, what protocols and tools you would recommend to people in helping with this? Sure. I think it's, a, it's not actually rocket science. We don't have to go really out of our way to bring, uh, to reinvent the wheel, essentially. The most basic things is, um, if you have to go back, back to the basics, so what can a parent do to provide an appropriate environment that facilitates learning? So this is mainly things like attention, being supportive, being a supportive parent, um, providing them with sufficient stimuli. So stimuli means things like maybe puzzle solving, solving maths problem, giving them a Lego set or things, things like that. And, and at the same time, we also need to encourage them specifically physical activity because physical activity is very highly correlated with developing new memories, being able to retain these new memories and, and that essentially is positive for learning. If we have, or if we just live a sedentary lifestyle, we won't be able to learn as much because we're not, it, it, this, this, this is, evidence has shown that there's definitely a positive impact of learning because of physical evidence. And then after the physical, imp, uh, physical uh, exercise, we also have to think about our daily routine, including our sleep. And that is very important as well to develop new memories and improve learning as well. Yeah, but not more than eight hours. <laughs> so not 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 twelve or sixteen hours of sleep. Right. Um, you want to tell that to the teenagers? Why is sleep so important? So um, sleep is very important for a couple of reasons. Um, so usually when we go to sleep, it allows our brain to get rid of the toxins, and it also allows us to actually go through our dream state as well. It goes the different phases to sleep. And, and essentially, some of the phases in the sleep that we have um, allows us to develop new memories. So that is also sleep. That is that is why sleep is so important to us as well. Um, if we touch on sort of the as Islamic aspect as well. So <clears throat> one thing in particular I want to ask is that quite often what we find is those individuals who memorize the the, the, the text of the Holy Quran. So they memorize the Holy Quran. It's said that those individuals, are, um, you know, the Quran, learning the Quran opens the opens the mind and opens the brain. So, I sort of want to touch on this aspect. Is there any scientific evidence that this could actually happen? In other words, is, is being a hafiz or learning part of the Quran? Does that is there any evidence that that would actually increase your intelligence or your brain function or even affect your neuroplasticity? So I, 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 I would say I have not looked for any specific evidence, scientific evidence. I think it would be very limited for Western researchers to look at any specific um, 
to 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 tackle that question on, on a scientific basis. But I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier that learning something new and then definitely learning the Quran that's something that's dear to you and being interested in it then it allows you to also have that personal relationship with the Quran as well because you're not just learning something off by heart you're also using your mind to once you have a certain amount of knowledge you also have are able to understand that bit and that will allow you to have a way of thinking of how to think about one verse how to think about other verse and so on and so forth so it allows you to know the factual bit but it also allows you to 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 utilize that bit in argument for example of how this verse would fit in in this specific argument or so on and so forth or in this discussion so using it using it in an appropriate way because the way the way if we come to the question let's say how is albert einstein a genius or how is how is mozart a genius or 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 how is dr abdullah a genius the way i see it is you have a you have acquired a fundamental level of knowledge and you've become so well versed in that fundamental of knowledge you're able to develop new ideas with the fundamental knowledge that is accessible to everyone so that makes the difference between someone who is in my opinion a genius they have a basic level of knowledge that would be accessible to anyone but they're able to go around and go about um to develop new hypotheses to develop new ideas from the basic understanding that everybody else has same access to right and just basically continuing with that question are there any other overlaps you've seen in your research when you've um been you know all these years any connection with islamic teachings that you know there's like a eureka moment that oh yeah that's a kind of which you know islam already teaches kind of thing did you get any of those have you found um any connections I think um I tried to find a Quranic verse and I I've, I've still been struggling to find for it but I think essentially it was in relation to DNA and that essentially it is very difficult to put down DNA if we wanted to write it out as a book. Um I don't remember exactly which verse that is but, but I, I hope it sounds familiar. Um um essentially the more we look at 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 DNA the more there are questions that we have answers for it. we cannot explain everything and there's not just the dna bit then there's the aspect of translation so that is the irony then there's the bits about proteins and then there's the bits of how the cell looks and cell interacts with other things so there's just not just one thing to it there's five or six different layers to it and we are just at the beginning of it and we don't understand it fully so it's 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 from 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 the perspective from the islamic perspective it is that we should strive to learn this new wisdom but it will be still very difficult for us to do so because this is creation this we were created by god and and we won't be fully able to understand what god's creation is all about just another question how much inspiration do you get from the quran when you're reading it because there's there's a lot in there about creation about humans about psychology psychiatry all these kind of things and do you get inspiration from the quran yes definitely so um i think some of the um there's a couple of facets to 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 how i get inspired by the quran so one of the most interesting that i found very interesting i think um uh, i always found the virgin birth i found very interesting and the genetic side of things of that the other things i found interesting is specifically when the quran talks about people who have got illness and disability because um uh, if they don't have the capacity make decisions in regards to how they will be treated by god and what rights they have and how they should exercise 
exercise living Islamically. So, for example, if you've got somebody who's disabled, they don't have to exercise the same rights as they don't have. They're not required to go for the pilgrimage. They're not required to to do certain things that is compulsory for people who have a normal intellect. So, so I found that very fascinating. In, in regards to other questions, and I think there's more ethical questions in, in regards to where we live in the current times, because more and more research is done on on genes and 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 you might have heard about. I mean, it's, it's quite common to hear about these like things like designer babies, and 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 and, and so on. And that, that, that there's a so 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 Islamically, I think it's something we should have more awareness about to have a position in regards to what is our stance on these things. So. And and I I think I definitely find that the Quranic teaching, from my understanding, provides a clear cut answer. Just as a final um, point before we close off, other youngsters who may be listening to this, who aren't so sure what they want to do in life, I want you to sell to them why they should go into research, especially whatever research that is. I think that's again a very good question. Um, I so if you would have asked me, it's, uh, if you would have asked me after after medical school, will I do another degree afterwards? I would have probably said, probably would have said no. But I've done plenty of exams afterwards, and and once I felt into academia, once I started doing for postgraduate education, I haven't again, I haven't looked back. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and it allowed me to grow as a person it allows me to um understand things better and 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 uh, i think that's the main thing in regards to we as muslims we are supposed to travel all the way to china if you have to seek knowledge so I, I think and gaining that knowledge will allow you to be more successful in life it will allow you to stand apart it will allow you to consider where you want to take your next step. If you finish your education too early, you're limiting your options in life. And if you are continuing with education, you will have more avenues open to you. And the more avenues that are open to you, the more options, again, it goes back, the more avenues you have, the, the more opportunities you will get. It's actually a feedback loop. And I think that's what I felt is my experience in life as well. The more I have done, the more opportunities came about. Fantastic. And Dr. Jalil Ahmed Sharif, Jazakallah, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. I had uh, some really interesting discussions and we wish you the, well, the best in the future. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to the Al Hakam Inspire podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Visit our socials on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Al Hakam Inspire. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave your comments there. We would love to hear your feedback and thoughts, so send us an email to inspire at alhakam.org.